Welcome to Building Conversations, a construction podcast powered by the STO Building Group. On today's episode, four industrial construction experts from across the STO Building Group's brands and markets came together to discuss the evolving challenges of building in the high-speed, high-tech industrial sector. Join Jeff McKinnon, Senior Director of Corporate Development at Govan Brown, Eric Ney, Executive Vice President of National Client Support at Layton Construction, Scott Frank, Project Director at Elif Driscoll, and Jason Quinn, Senior Vice President of Estimating at Paverini McGovern. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Industrial Sector Podcast with the STO Building Group. My name is Jeff McKinnon. I work with Gavin Brown, the operating partner in the Canadian region, and I'm joined by a number of my colleagues across North America. Hi, I'm Eric Ney. I'm Executive Vice President of our National Build Group with Leighton Construction, uh, based here in Salt Lake City, but uh, we have operations in 34 states and in Canada. Um, and I look forward to diving in and, and discussing a little bit of our industrial experience and, and what makes it unique and what makes it fun to be in. Well, hi, my name is Scott Frank. I'm with LF Driscoll Company. We primarily work in the Northeast and I'm a uh, project director. I've been working on a couple large industrial projects and looking forward to being part of this podcast with everyone. Hi, my name is Jason Quinn, Senior Vice President at Paverine McGovern. We do the core and shell work in the New York City metro area. And the industrial experience, you know, over the last few years, we've been seeing inroads into the New York City market, and we've been looking at multiple projects and mainly the outer boroughs here. So let's dive in. Um, you know, the industrial space is an evolving asset class, and certainly there's a number of large occupiers dominating the market right now. But Eric, maybe I'll, I'll tee you up for this one. You know, what, what makes the industrial sector unique and, and how are we seeing this asset class evolving? Yeah, so uh, I, I believe we've had just a transformational adjustment to what we all define as industrial the last decade and even so much in the last three or four years, predominantly because of the customer's need to get packages and to get products in a very, very short time frame. We were, we were all discussing earlier that, uh, you know, it was very normal for customers to get their packages seven to 10 days. And now you wouldn't go back to that company if they provided a seven to 10 day window to get that product to you. We're, we're all built in and programmed that one to two, one to three days is a necessity. And there is one very large company with a smiley face that's now providing it to you in one day. And if you order before 10 a.m., you can get it that afternoon. And so what really makes this industry very unique is the speed to market. Not only speed to market for them to deliver to their customers, but also the speed to market in which they expect their general contractors to build a quality product with a predictable cost and schedule. And so there's a lot more partnerships going on throughout the country that we've seen. A lot more negotiated partnerships where they have two or three, three or four general contractors in their corner working for them. And they find opportunities that best fit both their general contractor and the customer for locations throughout the country. So it's been, I think, transitioned from a hard bid model where 80, 90 percent of the work was hard bid to maybe 60, 70 percent is negotiated or a VGC model with a very quick burn to uh, only 20 to 30 percent of the model now is a hard bid model. So they've really transitioned their process and their procurement methods in order to be more available and deliver more for their customers in these short time frames. So, you know, we have to establish that trust quickly. We have to be a flexible partner and we have to be able to travel. And, and, you know, the STO building group having offices throughout the United States and being able to provide predictability, whether it be Q1 
throughout the country or in Canada has really been a value proposition for a lot of our customers. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. So a big hot button uh, topic right now with a lot of our customers is procurement, is the supply chain challenges. How are we seeing each one of our markets from a supply chain perspective? And, and what are the challenges and uh, opportunities that you guys are identifying in the industrial sector at the moment? I'm working on a project up in Rochester, New York, and we've, we've run across supply chain issues in almost every aspect of the work. What we've been able to do, once we recognize it, when we were starting structural steel and joists and deck, is that we started reaching out, way out something we didn't need for six months, and we kept a close eye on the market with those, with those trades or those products to make sure we had availability. It didn't always work out that way. So sometimes we were limited to going with one supplier across the country to provide the material we needed to make the schedule that we were required by the owner for them to build their, bring their building online. Yeah, we're seeing the same thing. Steel, metal deck, all being an issue. And then I think especially with these buildings and the size of the roof on them, roofing is becoming an issue, obviously, on supply chain and inflationary. So Perfect. Thanks, Jason. So, so the question constantly comes up, you know, how are we controlling costs and how can we ensure that, that you know, the, the developer or the customer is getting a competitive buyout of the project if we're ahead of the stream and not in a, in a hard bid scenario? From a procurement model perspective, how, how are we uh, you know, supporting our clientele to ensure they're getting the best price? Well, I think given this model is, is so fast paced and transactional, you know, there's a lot of real time data that our pre-construction teams have. You know, if, if we're bidding and building projects real time, we really have a good gauge of where critical mass is on concrete, roofing, steel structures, site casts, structural concrete, roofing, and then site work. You know, we have a really good idea of the pulse of the market and the industry. And being able to pull from that real data and then apply that to the subcontractor base when they provide bids to be vocally self-critical, vocally critical on the bids as well and say, well, this is maybe some of the numbers that we're seeing and question that. I think it provides more predictability in pricing and it, it helps provide more predictability to our customers. One of the um, experiences that we had delivering a large-scale industrial project here in Ontario is the constructability plan of going with a precast or a tilt wall system. From a supply chain perspective, you know, if, if we're going to be waiting 12 months for steel deck or open wall steel joists, does that impact the constructability plans for how we're actually going to be delivering these projects, whether we're going to go tilt or precast or how we're going to approach the overall planning? What are you seeing in your markets and how have you guys mitigated that? I think being flexible and understanding really the timelines is, is a huge value add and proposition to our customers. We've seen it in, in different markets, a lot of variability. Out here in the West, we almost predominantly do site cast structural concrete tilt. Uh, with joist and deck, you know, as a model. When we head to the Midwest, precast is a predominant method. It does have some challenges right now with, with execution on schedule delivery. We're seeing it out to 40 to 48 weeks, where historically we've seen that in the 20 to 26 weeks range. And then pushing that out to the East Coast where there's opportunities for both. You know, we've done site cast tilt and precast in, in opportunities throughout, you know, the Northeast and the Eastern Mid-Atlantic areas. So we really sit down and understand what all the different methodologies are, how they affect the overall schedule, um, some ideas to improve schedule, um, some ideas to improve how we deliver the project. And, you know, it, I think it just is a case-by-case -case basis in each market. We're seeing customers order steel earlier and earlier before we, you know, break ground on civil operations because it's such a long lead time to get steel on site. And instead of going your exterior skeletal steel on a lot of these projects, they're looking at a, a concrete alternative to minimize the amount of steel they need on the project, not only for cost, but more importantly, for schedule ramifications. So I guess the answer is, is we, we really look at every project in any site that we're looking at differently 
and provide the customer all the different options so they can make an educated decision that best meets their needs. Thanks, Eric. So, you know, with the industrial sector evolving and then, you know, this asset class becoming quite specialized with some of the billets projects we're, we're seeing in the market, you know, whether it be material handling equipment, uh, specialized utilizations, multi-story um, deliveries, how are we incorporating the owner supplied vendors into our overall construction plan? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, it has evolved in a very complex process before sort racks and transitional racking and, and equipment and vendor installed equipment were, were somewhat rudimentary. And it was more of a pick and pull method where now a lot of things are automated with a lot of artificial intelligence built into the systems. We built a building recently where they're moving 90,000 packages an hour that go 42 miles an hour down a conveyor belt and they're measured in for size and weight. All simultaneously, it moves 42 miles an hour through a laser x-ray system. It's unbelievable the amount of technology that we're seeing in these, in these systems now. So you cannot approach it how we probably approached it 10 to 15 years ago, where it was a more rudimentary handoff to the material handling vendors. Now they're very much integrated into our process, integrated into our pull planning sessions, integrated into our overall strategic plan for the project, and being able to coordinate with them on their needs for power upgrades, on their needs for sequencing of the building and phasing of the building, what parts of the building they might need first that are more complicated for the install, and then the brains of the building, how we move them into the MDF rooms and any power upgrades of the building so that they're integrated into those discussions early so it's successful for them. And our goal and objective as a general contractor is to make sure that these projects are, are successful not only for us, but for the MHE vendor, which in turn makes it a success for the customer, and then that turns into repeat business. I would throw that question over to Scott, who I know has a, a background in healthcare uh, construction as well, which is a lot of the mentality we've pulled from, right? In, in hospitals, you have a lot of the vendors pulling in specialized equipment for x-rays, uh, or for MRI equipment, or in surgical centers, a lot of their equipment there, there's a lot of early integration. So we pulled a lot of that same methodology into industrial right now. And Scott, you've seen that in, in a lot of your projects. Maybe you could speak to it. There's a lot of similarities. So things in healthcare are very regimented, very strict procedures. And as it relates to industrial, the project I just came off in Nashville, where you just said it earlier, Eric, there, there's these machines are moving these this product in and out of that building at a very rapid pace that takes very specialized vendors to not only design and create this, this system of material handling as it is to bring it online and to operate it efficiently. Awesome. Thanks, guys. I think we can all agree that the sector is evolving and you know, a lot of owner-supplied vendors with very large contracts are getting incorporated into the constructability plans that we own. BIM modeling has become pretty commonplace for most of the projects we're working on. I know STO Building Group has a very extensive BIM department across each of our operating partners. Eric, maybe you can uh, expand on that and how we've uh, been able to work with the owner-supplied vendors and incorporating them into the BIM to you know, provide that predictability outcome. Absolutely. You know, we, we got integrated with one customer who was accustomed to spending the last month after substantial completion reworking the project and spending millions of dollars updating and rehabilitating the project match the needs of their equipment. And we turned that on its head and pulled it in and pulled the Revit models and integrated early their BIM modeling to find clashes, to find areas of opportunity within the building that we could tackle before it became a clash, before it became a problem. And we think that in turn saved millions of dollars of rework and have lost time. And that has been a major development with one of our customers. And we've done 26 projects with this customer. And uh, we've had a very robust plan in BIM coordination for all 26 projects. 
And that has really set the stage for how they deliver this product nationally with a lot of their other GC partners. Um, so we're seeing a large effort to integrate as early as possible your BIM technology to, uh, to avoid rework. It's all about uh, providing predictability and schedule. And if there's an opportunity for you to cut any wasted time at the end of a project, the customer's all about it. And for a fairly minimal cost, if you really look at the cost for BIM for advanced and comprehensive BIM coordination, it's a hell of a lot better than uh, what you're going to spend on, on the back end in rework. Got it. I think that leads into the next question. You know, we uh, as an organization operate you know, 43 offices around the world, but pretty extensively across North America, Canada and the U.S. When entering a new market that you know, we might not have an established office and you were working on behalf of a customer, I think that you know, having that fully detailed and coordinated BIM model does help us integrate with the local sub-trade market, define exactly what the work, working plan of each one of these build-outs is. Now, Eric, I think you've got the most experience in different markets. Now, maybe you can expand on how we've been able to deliver in, in, in markets where we, we might not have boots on the ground or an office and come in and deliver these outcomes for our clients. I'd say it really boils down to, to three areas of opportunity or three focuses. I'd say the first focus is making sure that you understand the product type. And oftentimes our, our customers are taking us and repeating a project or a similar project in a different market and, and expecting the same level of predictability and outcome. So really understanding the product type, I would say, is number one. And, you know, STL Building Group has a really good handle on what our customers are wanting and looking at this with a progressive mindset to see how we can help them be better and innovate, to, you know, provide a better product at every turn. I'd say the second focus is really getting and early rolling up your sleeves in pre-construction. If, if our customers ask us to go to a market that we might not have as much experience, um, I'll use the example of Scott in Rochester, New York right now, and he can speak a little bit to that. But we, we know the caliber of subcontractors we're looking for. We throw a very large net through our building connected systems, and then we deploy our teams and our estimating managers and pre-con managers to those markets to meet with those folks in person and talk about the timelines, the, the hours required, the staff, the manpower needed to hit a project like this. Again, that's taking from that first bucket and integrating into that second bucket to really learn and educate as much as we possibly can that local market of what our expectations are. And then finally, the execution of the project, bringing in uh, team members who are accustomed to travel, are accustomed to working with subcontractors for the first time and willing and able to train them, to, to tell them how they were successful on previous projects and help them be more successful. You know, I believe our goal after we finish a project and we might leave that region, that we left that region with a higher level of understanding of how to build fast, how to build safe, and how to build high quality projects. Um, so I would say it really boils down to those three markets. Know your product, really get deep in the pre-construction side to educate, train, and identify the right partners. And finally, to execute and be willing to, to carry your subcontractors as much as you can to, to provide that predictability for your customer. Awesome. You know, our, our clients are asking us to build larger, more sophisticated projects in, in less time. You know, having the right subcontractor partner on the team is more important than ever. You know, what are some of the strategies that we bring to ensure that we do have the right team and, you know, the right labor on site to deliver the outcome? It all starts in pre-construction and, and going into a market that's never seen a project like this before. When you start soliciting your subcontractors, you need to take a very good look at what they've done in the past and what their current workload is. But more importantly, they have to understand what they're actually looking at in the project and what, what the requirements are and the deliverables are, and that failure is not an option. 
So in doing so, we, we bring every trade in, we go through a thorough scope almost day by day, what they can expect month by month, of where they have to be to make sure that they haven't exhausted all resources that their company may be able to provide. When we went to Rochester, the area had never seen anything like this before, even closely. The subs that we met with, we had to make sure they understand not only the speed, but the quality that had to follow along with it to achieve our schedule. Hiring the wrong trade in a market like that could could potentially put that company out of business because they, they've run out of resources and you have nowhere to go. So making people aware of it's not just a project that's 16, 17 months long. It's a marathon. Scott, that's great. I really appreciate the insights into uh, you know the buyout and uh, choosing the right partner. Kind of brings me back to you know the STL Building Group. It's a brand and a, a, a and a team across the country. We have a tremendous amount of historical data and construction experience to bring to the table. You know, Eric, what would you say is the biggest competitive advantage the STL Building Group has, uh, and how, how we've been able to support our partners? Well, I I believe we have a significant value proposition in as much that I think I underestimated it when we joined the group a a few years ago. You know, um, it has been tremendous to be able to bring a national uh, platform where you have experience in multiple markets with customers and be able to pull national lessons learned and get as granular as you need to with personal relationships. We recently looked at a project in northern New Jersey for a customer who we were able to pull national experiences and lessons learned and get as granular as possible with Structure Tone New Jersey, where they even knew the permitting officials as a first name basis. So you're, you're getting the national experience, the national benefit, and getting granular where the rubber meets the road to get that benefit as well. It's, it's truly, you're getting both sides of the sword. Um, and, and I think that the national platform, as far as personal relationships with subcontractors and markets throughout the country and throughout Canada, and being able to couple that with our ability to provide predictability, whether you're in Florida, or whether you're to Seattle, Washington, to Hawaii, to Maine, um, we've been able to provide predictability in the market. And that that large shotgun approach coupled with that rifle approach of, of local relationships and knowledge has been huge. And I'll, you know, I'll throw that over to Jason because he and I have worked on projects where you know, we're bringing in some national data and he's able to talk to with local relationships to get that as granular as we need. Yeah, I think that's definitely one thing about you know the SEO building group as a whole is you know, you have the national expertise, but, and to your point, Eric, you know, we know the local subcontractor base. And as Scott was even saying, having the right guys on the job and making sure that uh, we know the job's going to get built, that we have the manpower and the resources, you know, that, that local ability, it's untouchable, I think. Privileges. And then, you know, speaking more locally here in Toronto, where I'm based, Governor Brown historically has been an interiors constructor. And over the past couple of years, we've been building out our, our corn shell development team. But to take on a, a 2.4 million square foot multi-story industrial project in our market, you know, was it was a daunting task. And bringing that experience of the traveling teams up here to not only train our internal teams here at Gov Brown how to build uh, structures of this size and scale and speed, but you know, bringing that at level of experience to the, to the local subtrade market is you know really it's evolved the, the sector as a whole here and 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 really pushed the limits of, of constructors here in Toronto. So. Yeah, it's a it's it's a great story to bring to the market, and, and we're excited to continue to expand on it. Um, so the the industrial sector is becoming quite specialized. I think we've talked about one of our clients in the e-commerce uh, side of the business, but you know we're also seeing it on some of our food service groups. Some large grocers are still trying to get into that mentality of same day delivery. Um, how are you seeing uh, the industrial sector becoming specialized? 
Yeah, you know, and I think this is center of the target for an organization like STO Building Group, where we, we build hospitals, we build data centers, we build uh, complex defense operations, we build robotic centers, uh, light manufacturing, and all the way to spec industrial and development. So there's no projects that is too complex for this organization to tackle. So I think the fact that it's getting more complex and more complicated is exactly the reason you need an organization like STO Building Group to tackle your project. That being said, you know, we're seeing speed to market be the single greatest change in this space. And being able to coordinate and, and have qualified subcontractors that the customer can count on their quality, can count on their schedule, is absolutely critical to the success of the project. You're seeing in a lot of the food storage, as you had mentioned, uh, the production and utilitarian focus on these projects has advanced to another level. One in particular, we just uh, were awarded a project and, and, and are in the middle of a design build for a uh, food manufacturing project that's a no-bake organic product that is now going from three manufacturing lines, which they've had in the, in the past, to six lines in the same amount of square footage. So we're custom building, custom designing a facility that meets their needs that can provide up to 70 million units produced per year. That's something that this company would never have dreamed of 10 years ago with their product. But their demand has far outreached their ability to manufacture. And so they came to an organization like STO Building Group for them to say, how do we provide the output that our customers are needing us to do in a very predictable schedule? So we're able to build that project from start to finish, design to turnover in 13 months. And that is really a tremendous value proposition for an organization like STO Building Group. Um, and it's providing predictability for that customer. And we know that when that customer builds this project, in, in two or three years, they're going to need one on the West Coast as well. That's one example. In the cold storage facility, you are seeing products move a lot faster than historically ha has been seen in these facilities. You're seeing portions of the building being driven towards deep cold, whether you're 20 to 40 degrees and you need a glycol-treated slab, to some portions of the building being refrigerated goods only, where they're coming in for a short period of time and going out to either grocery store chains or to um, customers in the franchise businesses in across the metro market. So we're able to take a lot of complex experience from our mission critical data center side, from our large robotic fulfillment side, and implement that into the cold storage. So the name of the game is speed. The name of the game is providing that quality so that they can deliver on their customer needs. Yeah, I think, you know, here in New York City, you know, in the five boroughs, we're seeing a lot more adaptive reuse out of existing buildings, which is actually, to Eric's point, bringing things a little bit quicker. Um, the buildings are set up, they're old, and some of the food cold storage, uh, we've been looking at, you know, Wegmans and Whole Foods have been setting up out in the boroughs, and again, reusing existing buildings and modifying them for the specific use. But I think we're having the frame there, having the foundations there, you know, you move in a little bit quicker of a speed than, you know, a typical out of the ground job. I think one thing to add, you know, as the lease rates for industrial product go up and up and, you know, proximity to the end user and the customer becomes, you know, very important. You know, we're seeing quite a few malls in the Canadian market being repositioned for, for industrial use for, you know, for that last mile type utilization, you know, and where cost per acre of industrial land is, is you know, higher than it's ever been, certainly in my career, we're starting to see you know, higher density industrial product be, be contemplated. 
you know, just locally here in Toronto, there's a, a proposed multi-story industrial spaces that are going through the SBA process, which is really unheard of. You know, Vancouver's got the first multi-story industrial build that's going up. It's been under development for a couple of years. Eric, Jason, Scott, are you guys seeing any uh, multi-story utilization uh, for multi-tenants or is it you know, sing- single occupancy with structural floors? We're seeing that in some of the more specialized builds, but is that, you, you guys see that becoming commonplace? We don't see many multi-tenanted type buildings yet, but you know, not to say that it's not coming to the area. I think uh, a lot of the large customers, it's dominating the market where they're taking uh, space down. And we've seen uh, customers take down in an, recently in a 680,000 square foot building. The customer only needed 400,000, but they leased up the entire building for future growth. Understanding their demand is, is rocket ship up towards uh, the full ut- utility of that building. But you're seeing industrial developers build for the future. If they build it, they will come mentality. And in most cases, those bets are paying off. Um, We recently just built three 250,000 square foot design build facilities on a campus. And before, you know, we had even poured foundations, two of the buildings had leased up. So it's just an amazing amount of demand right now outpacing the supply. And so industrial developers are trying to provide product to their customers as quick as they can and customize it as much as they can. With, with land values going up and leasing rates going up, what would be important to an industrial developer that's looking to, you know, enter that kind of cross-dock, last mile, you know, close to the city type of product line? That's, that's pretty important for most of our metropolitan areas. Speaking from the Toronto and Vancouver, two of our major markets, where cost per acre for industrial zone land is getting up towards you know, over 10 million bucks. You know, how do we maximize the density on, on that acre? We recently looked at several projects in major metro areas. You know, you, you go through a Kmart who filed bankruptcy, and most of their buildings were between 84,000 and 120,000 square feet. If a tenant decided to go into a said building and um, make some modifications structurally and add a mezzanine, they could get anywhere between 150 to 250,000 square feet of usable space industrial within that building and have the parking necessary for their um, employees who are being involved in the package handling um, duties of that building and be successful. So we've looked at two particular projects to retrofit those and to turn them into last mile facilities for a customer. And I think there's gonna be a lot more use to those facilities. You hit it right on the head, Jeff, with the cost per square foot in a lot of these industrial areas, just at levels that we've never seen before and doesn't seem to slow down. They're going to be a little more innovative in, in the areas that they're looking at, and specifically in these retail customers who aren't uh, as healthy and who are looking at, at selling a lot of their asset class to these small micro distribution centers. But I'll throw that over to Jason, maybe speak about what he's seen in more metro areas. Yeah, here, um, you know, obviously Manhattan land is way too expensive, but what we've been seeing is, you know, over in Queens and Long Island City and then up in the southern Bronx. Land's a little bit cheaper. Access to the highways are right there. And there's a lot of, you know, empty warehouse buildings. We don't obviously have Kmarts or any, you know, big box retail per se in the the surrounding boroughs that are getting reused or anything. I couldn't really speak much for Jersey. To Jeff's point, you know, a lot of malls, those anchor tenants are kind of gone at this point. So any adaptive reuse would be uh, definitely something interesting to uh, happen in, in the New Jersey market. But New York, yeah, I think it's it's mainly outer boroughs. And like I said earlier, most of the buildings we're looking at are adaptive reuse of existing, you know, old industrial buildings. You know, they got the, the right loading, you know, pounds per square foot are up, column spacing's generally pretty good, and they're, they're pretty sturdy buildings. All right, thanks, Jason. 
What's become pretty top of mind for a lot of our clients, and I think I'll speak for the group here, sustainability in the ESG initiatives for all of our clients is, is something that we're constantly getting asked of us. How can we support our partners on both fronts, whether it's on the procurement side of things or on the sustainability front? You know, Eric, I know you guys are working pretty extensively with a lot of our industrial groups across, across the platform on the sustainability front. Um, you know, what, what are you seeing from there and how, how have we been able to support our clients? Well, we, you're exactly right. There's some goals to their customers to be net carbon zero by 2040. There's other customers who are just making this a focus of their organization going forward in construction. So we really are being tip of the spear on, on this platform nationally. And two projects in particular I want to highlight, we're really taking a focus in embodied carbon understanding the fruit which is closest to the uh, to the bottom of the tree and making sure that we're capturing all the abilities that we can during the construction process to minimize the overall embodied carbon on a project and you know Scott is our uh, senior project manager CM on a project we're doing in New York we're really taking a concerted effort towards you know carbon cure technologies and embodied carbon reduction uh, I throw that over to Scott to speak briefly to uh, our abilities to uh, target that for our customer. Sure. Thank you, Eric. So we have a, a client that wants to go zero carbon emissions by 2040. And what we do on a daily basis is we capture all the commuting miles, the fuel usage for all the equipment on site, the delivery miles, the fuel consumption used. We, we log those into our Green Badger system that tracks all of that for the life of the project. But in addition to that, we're also tracking the embodied carbons and all the materials that we bring to the site. So what we do is we collect EPDs, which are environmental product declarations. These are declarations and studies that have been done for things that go into a product, let's just say uh, drywall, where what it took to mine that material, the ingredients to make that piece of drywall, to the extraction, and then the assembly of that drywall and the manufacturing of it. And then we also track the fuel consumption for it to get to our site. So it's not just everything on our site, but it's also tracking all the embodied carbons that it took to make that piece of material. One of the things I want to comment on here would be on recycling. And recycling is pretty common in most areas. It's pretty much standard operating procedure. But in this particular area that we're working in, there hasn't been a demand for recycling compliance for about five years now. So there's no local waste management company that can actually do this without a cost to our owner. So we're actually developing an off-site recycling yard specific to our project so the owner can maintain their goals of achieving the sustainability that their corporation has committed to not only the environment, but to the rest of the world. STL Building Group does have a director of sustainability that is involved at every, at every turn through our pre-construction process. Um, and, you know, we, we, we tie sustainability a lot to, you know, if you were asked to go, you know, cut down a tree and you had an hour to do it, you'd spend 30 minutes sharpening the blade rather than an hour hacking at the tree. And that's a lot of the similarities to sustainability. You can make the most influence on your outcomes in pre-construction. And so we're integrating our director of sustainability early on in these projects to make the most impact for our customers. It's important to STL Building Group. It's important to our customers. And we're, we're glad that the industry is moving towards a more sustainable approach to these projects. Thanks, guys. You know, I think we can all agree the industrial asset class is evolving and all the, uh, the suppliers and the vendors that have worked in the sector for some time are you know, getting forced to adapt to the changing environment. Now, what, what's next? Where do we see the industrial sector going uh, and continue to evolve over the, over the next couple of years? For us, you know, in the New York City metro area, you know, Jersey's got a lot of industrial, but we're starting to see again more and more coming into the city, especially with the last mile delivery model. So I think for us, it's going to definitely be a growing sector for our business here. And then again, in, you know, 
Jersey is continuously going. So hopefully, you know, as the STO building group and structure tone and the Driscoll groups, you know, down in the Southern Jersey and North Jersey, get more into the industrial sector and, and start uh, picking up some of this work. But I, I don't see it slowing down, not with e-commerce and everything. I think it just, it's just going to be a continuously growing business. So what I would say, being primarily around the Philadelphia area, that we, we don't have a lot of multi-story industrial warehouses. Uh, we are starting to see a few of them, maybe two stories. It really kind of depends on if a customer is looking for space and they don't need the building loading for multiple stories isn't as important to them. They're more apt to repurpose a building, but if it's a multi-story customer who needs to move product up and down, then they're going to look at building a new structure because of the capacity on the foundations. I'd add to that, we're also looking at a lot more micro distribution centers going more vertical. Uh, right now, we're building five robotic centers across the country that are over 90 feet tall with four or five levels. You know, With the increase in, in industrial uh, real estate across North America, we're seeing the need to go more vertical, which has happened in Europe for quite some time. And by doing that, you're having to look at different building products, different forms of sequencing in the process, and, and how you help your customers be successful. And last but not least, just speed continues to be a focus of our customers, and the use of more advanced you know, and sophisticated general contractors will continue to be a focus of our customers as well. Um, what worked in the past of, of being uh, fast and cheap is kind of yesteryear with the challenges with commodity pricing and the complexity of these buildings growing and growing. They need a more sophisticated builder. Um, and that's why we really believe that STO Building Group provides a, a great solution for our customers, you know, across the networks and, and, and across the platform in North America. Yeah, and I, I certainly think that, uh, you know, our, our platform and that speed to market, Eric, is giving our customers more competitive advantage on the leasing front. With industrial vacancies sitting below 2% in most of our markets right now, how fast can we build and get their tenants in and occupying is, is really the name of the game. That concludes the industrial sector podcast for the STO Building Group. Hopefully everybody you know, learned a little bit more about how we approach this space and these types of projects. I want to thank Eric, Scott, and Jason for joining me today. It was a, it was a very healthy conversation and hopefully we can keep, it, keep the conversation going. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Building Conversations. For more episodes like this, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or the Structure Tone website.